Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together by sharing stories to make connections. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a novice. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching, riding, or collecting better. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, then you're in the right place. The show is story-based and edited and comes out about once a month. February is a short month, so this is going to be a slightly shorter than normal episode, but it's still jam-packed with heart. Ugh, winter, right? Well, at least if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. For cyclists, it's the dreaded season of the three-fourths of the year that's great. There's one-fourth that's really, really difficult to get through. And some of us try rolling beyond the trainer by having some winter bike setups, and we'll talk about those in this episode. Also, bikes come in and out of our lives at weird times. Most of us start biking when we're kids, and then some of us drop off for a while and then restart. And it might be intentional, or it might be a happy accident. And that's our second big story for this time. You have a lot of podcasts that you could be listening to right now, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on mine. Let's roll out. Some people cross paths with bicycles when they're really young, and then they don't really cross paths with bicycles again, having moved on to other things. Others have a lifelong relationship with bikes, and still some others crisscross back and forth, their paths crossing with bicycles, and then they go their separate ways and then back again. Maybe at one point in their lives with BMX, maybe another point in their lives with road bikes or mountain bikes. But for our next guest, a bicycle coming back into his life at exactly the right time was extremely fortuitous. I was at a beach house in Rhode Island and one of the closest calls to relapse where I was really struggling and I just, I felt extremely low. I felt extremely ashamed and embarrassed. And in the garage was this just, I think it was a purple girl's bike and and I had the idea that maybe riding that is the answer. For some reason, looking at like this little this little kid's youth bike that just wasn't going to fit, but for some reason it seemed like it held the answer. For some reason, it it looked like it looked like the right direction to go down, and so I hopped on the little girl's bike that didn't fit and started riding. And so much of my anxiety washed away as I started heading down the road. Hi, my name is Dylan, and I have reignited my love for bicycling over the last few years, using it to serve as sort of like a crutch for my recovery from alcoholism. The bike really became important to me in my life probably when I was about nine years old, and I got my first puffy mountain bike, I think from Benny's in New London, as a birthday present, and the importance of it gave me freedom. Being the oldest of five, 
I was able to really kind of get out of the neighborhood on my bike and go meet up with friends where my mom wasn't able to give me a ride. And then came the summer where baseball, where we played baseball every year down at Mitchell Woods in New London. And my bike was my mode of transportation. So I was able to take my bike down to the beach, down to the ballpark. It really served as a mode of transportation. And at that point, I think I was, I think a year later was when I first got a paper route. I saved up and I remember buying, goodness, it was a GT Dino Air. And I put the pegs on it and rode it around the neighborhood, rain, snow, and shine, delivering papers. <laughs> and it was, uh, that was really when I started, started really falling into love with the whole BMX bike and the 20 inch wheels. And I stayed on a BMX bike and really came, I did a couple races. I never, unfortunately, got into it the way I wanted to, but I always had a bike. It wasn't until, maybe up until high school, when I got my license, that I wasn't necessarily riding every day. Growing up, I was, I was fortunate enough. I grew up with Jeremy Powers. I went to school with Jeremy Powers. And it was interesting growing up with him. He was always racing mountain bikes at the time. And we'd go off to races and watching him just kind of dominate <laughs> in some of the early days, not knowing that there was a future in cycling. And my mom was like, no, you got to get rid of the bike. You can't live on the bike your whole life. And now we always joke. And I'm like, oh, Jeremy says hi. He says the bike's treating him real well, mom. <laughs> and so it's. It's really interesting to see how many different ways one person can go with a bike or, say, fall in love with just the whole concept of pedaling for whatever it reason, for whatever reason it is. But for me as a kid, it was really about kind of getting out there, having the freedom, doing tricks and wheelies and trying, <laughs> trying to see how far you could jump off the curb and bunny hop over the recycling bins. And it just... We wouldn't go anywhere without our bikes. And I remember my mom's my mom's rule growing up was you had to be home before the street lights were on. And I would come home and I'd be at the top of the street letting the air out of my tires to try to use the excuse that I got a flat tire coming home. And I think that only went over one or two times before she realized that I was just putting air in them and taking off the next day <laughs> rather than swapping out tubes. But it was it was definitely like the highlight of my childhood really was growing up on a bike. And I think back to all the times that we were able to explore just as like young boys on bikes and kind of doing the things that kids today aren't able to do and don't do. So if you grew up in New England, especially southeastern New England, you know about Benny's. Benny's is legendary. They were around from 1924 until 2017. Growing up in Norwich, Connecticut, they had almost everything I wanted to buy apart from food up until around age 18. My neck of the woods, the bike shops were pretty exclusive and not the local bike shop idea that you would think of today. And for a lot of us growing up in the lower side of the middle class, Benny's was our bike store. So please forgive me if I digress just for a moment with somebody else who grew up in the same area. That's awesome. So yeah, let's talk about Benny's for a second. Just as a support group for Benny's. Which Benny's yeah. did you get your bike from? It was the one on right by the New London Mall. And it was in, 
I want to say the right in Waterford, but it was right over the town line in, in New London. Like the that, one next to the grocery store? The, yeah. It was next to a grocery store and some big department store that didn't have any toys in it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I was a huge, huge fan of Benny's. And when they closed, I literally cried. When they went under, I was such a huge part of my childhood. I got my first G.I. Joe there. When they said you could go pick out, you know, some toy for your birthday or whatever, I'd be like, Benny's, let's go. (laughs) And I got a bike there. And the bikes were like one or two steps above where Walmart bikes are. And they were still not as good as bike shop bikes, but they were like a notch above what you get at like the junkier stores like theirs or they definitely were a slightly better quality and they were put together inside Benny's. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time at Benny's. Yeah, I remember going there and getting tubes, and really before I I had I, I was going to a bike shop, Benny's was was really my go-to for everything, and it was always an adventure. Like yeah. same thing, mom would be like, "Okay, you can pick out one thing, one thing, and down the toilet aisle I go." Yeah, yeah, I remember they used to have this. My dad did the same thing with me. It was like I gotta go pick up some hardware stuff at Benny's. So you can pick out one thing, and they and they literally had like this wall of rubber toys for a while. When I was a kid, <laughs> it's like you know, <laughs> yeah. rubber spider, rubber Batman, rubber rubber Spider Man, uh, rubber uh, shark, uh, just like literally like these cheap ass toys right there because they knew that the dads were walking in with the kids to go get their hardware stuff, and they'd be like, pick pick something, yeah, <laughs> get the kids, mm-hmm. attention, you know, yeah. Uh, I love Benny so much. We have uh, a Christmas ornament on our tree for Benny. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Anyway. So what part of New London did you grow up in? So I grew up, I was right by Shaw's Cove. It was on Stewart Street, like in between uh, Shaw Street and Montauk, the Bank Street. So right by St. Joe's School. Did you ever eat at Huey's? Yes, yes. With the garlic salad. Yes, the love salad. My mother-in-law makes makes somehow has his recipe. So, when whenever there's a cookout or a barbecue, it's always like, Beth, you want to bring the love salad, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) So you you fell out of biking for a while when you got a little older, and then what happened? Graduated high school from St. Bernard's in 2001, and I tried to be. A uh, studious student at UConn, but it did not work. After two years, I I did not go back. And it was 100% my fault. I was partying every day, really drinking a lot at the time, and just didn't know what I had, didn't know the opportunity I had. But at the same time, I had no control, and I was really kind of drinking just every day. And so after two years, I... I I didn't go back to school and just kind of picked up a job and started working. And I was working in between uh, Stash's Cafe, where I was like a bar back and a cook. And then I also had a day job during the day where I was building houses. So I was a a carpenter. And I started making some decent money. And I was like, oh, you know what? I've got a great idea. I'm going to buy a motorcycle. And I bought a motorcycle in the summer when I was 20 years old. And I had it for... A couple months, I was completely reckless. I'll admit, growing up on bikes and dirt bikes, like with the need for speed, I was completely reckless. And it was a a miracle of God that I made it as as long as I did on it. One day, 
I was coming back from my buddy's funeral in Norwich and stopped at the bar, grabbed a burger. I poured a beer and was like, you know what? I'm going to bring the bike home, grab my car. Everyone from the funeral showing up. We're going to go. Really, we're just going to be day drinking. So I can't have my bike. So ironically, I was making a good call to go bring the bike home. And when I was leaving the bar, I was going down Pequot Road in New London, which is right along the shore. I was basically just run off the road by an oncoming car, which led me into a head-on collision with basically a no parking sign. I swerved off to the side of the road, grabbed a, a full handful of the front brake in hopes to kind of endo and somersault into a front yard. I saw a flush front lawn and just saw grass and like the heat of panic. I was like, I can bail out, I can roll out and everything will be okay. And when I was actually like in the middle of the somersault, the back of my head hit a no parking sign that was right on the sidewalk. And that was kind of the last thing I remember. I remember hitting something and then everything going dark. I vaguely remember moving around on the sidewalk. Some guys just holding me down saying, don't move, don't move, help is on the way. And after maybe a minute, I went into shock and blacked out, and the ambulance showed up and brought me to L&M. And when I woke up in L&M, my right arm just, it didn't feel like it was there. Like, it just felt like I was missing the right side of my, my body. And I remember asking the doctor, where's my arm, where's my arm? And he's like, your arm's right here. And I was like, I can't feel it. And that was the first indication to me that something was drastically wrong. We went to... A couple different specialists after the motorcycle accident and was told that the arm is just has nerve damage, go to physical therapy, and your arm will, will heal. Give it about six months and it'll heal. It was maybe only a month or two after the accident where I really noticed the muscle atrophy playing a major role. My arm was just literally shrinking. It was just losing size, losing muscle tone, and on top of the phantom pain, we were really kind of scratching our heads as to what was going on. And it, it took about a year and a half before we finally found a specialist in New Jersey who was able to pinpoint the fact that my brachial plexus was avulsed. And the brachial plexus is a nerve grouping that controls, comes out of your spinal cord and it controls all the movement. And mine was pulled from my arm being hyperextended so far in the motorcycle accident. My nerves were pulled right out of the spinal cord. And so the good news was we found out what was wrong. The bad news was once the nerves are pulled out of your spinal cord, they can't be plugged back in. I'm learning all this stuff. I had no idea what the doctor was talking about. He did a great job just kind of really dumbing it down for me and saying, Dylan, it's, it's like once you unplug a plug from a wall socket, you can't plug it back in. But what we're thinking is we can take nerves from you and a donor and splice and dice and, like an electrician into the brachial plexus on the left side, run the nerves like an extension cord to the right side, and then splice and dice into the brachial plexus, which is already a vulse. And we were not really sure what to think. It was a very, very new idea. He had only done it a couple of times. We were the first Connecticut residents to go through this surgery. And when I say we, it was me and my mother. Because once my mom found out that she could be a donor instantly, she was like, yep, 
you can have my nerves. And what they did was they took the nerves out of the back of our legs and like a electrician spliced and diced onto the left side with the working brachial plexus, ran the nerve grouping through my neck and spliced and diced to the right side. And over another year of physical therapy, movement and strength started appearing in my hand and in my forearm. And over the years, so I was 20 when I got into the motorcycle accident, and now I am 37. So 17 years later, I'm, I'm still at the point where there's movement in my hand and wrist, but the bicep, tricep, shoulder, chest, and back muscles aren't firing at all. I can touch my fingers, and there's a little bit of coordination and feeling in my hands, strength in my forearm, but that's kind of it. That's kind of all we got for movement. But the real blessing was that the phantom pain really subsided. And for anyone who had has phantom pain and lives with phantom pain, they can tell you there's nothing really to describe it. Out of nowhere, just the worst pain takes over, and it's life-changing, crippling. It's really hard to do anything when the phantom pain hits you. You could be in the middle of a conversation, and all of a sudden you get this feels like lightning strike of phantom pain. And for me, it just felt like my arm was on fire. It felt like it was being crushed or on fire. It would take my breath away and it would completely have me for spouts anywhere as short as five seconds to maybe upwards of a minute. When it was really bad, it would be a minute. And there were nights after this initial accident, there were nights that you just couldn't sleep because you were in so much pain. So that was the real blessing out of this surgery was that the phantom pain subsided. I always joke about for so long I was so upset that all I got back was my hand and my wrist. And at the time, I didn't realize that all I needed was my hand and the wrist. And when I say that, it's because once I started riding a bike again, I realized that I had enough strength in my right hand to hold on to the handlebars, and I also had enough coordination to be able to shift and operate the brakes. It's funny because it's just enough. It's, I'm still pretty squirrely. It still feels like I'm riding with, with one arm as far as strength-wise, but being able to control the gears and brake has been the true, without really customizing, has been really allowed me to do some amazing things on a bike. And that's why I consider it a blessing because the bike has really saved me over the last six years. The bike has been my lifesaver. And when we say bike, we're talking bicycles only? Are you back on motorcycles as well? or? Yeah, I would say bicycling specifically. remember back to a family vacation when I was in Rhode Island. This was about seven years ago. And I was with a couple best friends and my wife, and my, my newly born daughter. And I was about, yeah, so I was seven years into my recovery from alcohol. I was seven years without a drink and everything, I don't want to say everything was going great. It had been a rocky road, but I hadn't had an incident like I did with this trip on vacation where all of a sudden my urge to drink was just completely magnified by a thousand. All I wanted to do was drink. 
And that night I went to bed not really knowing what I was going to be able to do the next day. And the next morning I woke up super early and went in the garage and there was a little girl's pedal bike or it would have been like a youth hybrid bike. It didn't fit me. It was in like a, a beach rental house. So I think it only utilized three gears. There weren't any brakes, but I was able to get on it and start pedaling. And for the last couple of days of that vacation, I all I could think about was the bike. Let me get on the bike. Let me get on the bike. Let me get on the bike. And I I got home after that vacation and, and kind of knew what I had to do. I had I had to get back on the bike. And the only bike I had at the moment was a mountain bike that was two sizes too small and just really impractical for what I wanted. So I I ended up buying buying a mountain bike, getting a, a specialized fuse, and just started riding on it. I rode up and down the airline trails, like doing just a couple miles at a time. And really, the cycling kind of brought into this whole new avenue of clear-mindedness, freedom. And all of a sudden, it served as, as a form of exercise. And as I started really trying to venture out past three, four miles, I bought a specialized Diverge. Getting on the good bike for the first time, it actually it felt absolutely amazing because up until then I had not I was not on a bike that fit or even really rode like it should have. So I got on the bike and I remember testing it out in the parking lot at the bike shop and just kind of pedaling and initially I was having a ton of trouble learning how to shift it and it was definitely one of those things where it was uncomfortable there was um a dropper seat post which was my first introduction to a dropper seat post and i remember thinking what's this button and hit it <laughs> and the seat comes down and i almost crashed and i hadn't bought the bike yet so <laughs> and it was just it was kind of nerve-wracking because Part of me wanted to test ride the bike, and the salesman looked so nervous letting me ride it and almost crashing it a couple of times. But once I got my balance and I started pedaling, and I was like, okay, well, this button shifts up, this button shifts down. Okay, okay, I got it. I would say it within, within maybe five or ten minutes, it felt like it was mine. It felt like it fit. It felt like it was the right size. And it definitely took months before I became truly what I would consider efficient with the shifting and the braking because there was just so much muscle that still needed to be built in my forearm and wrist that sometimes just holding on to the handlebars for more than a half hour was really a struggle. had some gravel tires on it and was like, I really like the idea of, of gravel grind. And I like the idea of riding on dirt roads that are rideable, but not super technical. Like some of the spots we find mountain biking in Connecticut with stumps and rocks, just because I, I have a really hard time controlling the technical spots with one arm, but on a gravel bike, you know, I wonder, I wonder what I could do. And that year was, was really rough year because my best friend, who was also my boss at the time, they found out that his 20-year-old daughter had cancer. And she was a patient at Smilo Cancer Center in New Haven. And really kind of watching her overcome the chemotherapy and losing the hair and just all the horrors and un 
certainty of having cancer and the weight of the family, it kind of felt like I needed to do something. And I, I was introduced to the Closer to Free Ride in New Haven out of Smilo. I don't know if I saw it on Facebook or got an email or someone told me. I don't know where the idea came from, but at a point in my life where I could ride only a handful of miles, I decided that I was going to sign up for the next year close to the free ride and attempt doing a hundred mile ride, which I, I, <laughs> I have no idea why I picked the longest distance, but I was like, I think I could get in shape in a year to, to be able to ride a hundred miles. And so all of a sudden what began, I had no idea what, what the journey was going to hold for me, but it just kind of became, now you got to start riding every day and you got to start increasing your mileage. And during that training period, I stopped in at an indoor spinning studio in Glastonbury called Empowered. And I took a class. It was my first indoor spinning class ever and just fell in love with that. And it was like, wow, like I can go as hard as I want without risking crashing and uh, just kind of close my eyes, put my head down and just take all my frustrations out on my legs. I started going to Empowered a couple times a week, and after about a year, Jocelyn, the, the owner of Empowered, was like, Dylan, what do you think about teaching spin class? I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I've never, I've never thought about teaching spin class. And so I hemmed and hawed about the idea and, and had, like, a lot of stage fright initially about getting up there and teaching. And the best decision I ever did was, was taking the classes and getting certified and being a a spin instructor because it's brought just so much passion to the table. Like I really love the exercise part. I like the motivating part. I like the pedaling part. And so it's really been just a happy spot in my life since I started going. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. But back to chasing down the, uh, the hundred mile ride that year, I decided that I was going to start doing some gravel grinders. So I wanted to start with one of the shortest ones I could find, which was the 40-mile. It was supposed to be a recovery ride, a 40-mile group recovery ride. My old friend Jeremy was going to be the guest rider who you got to ride with on that Sunday after the race. And I didn't take into account where it was. It was in western New York and really did not take into account the elevation. Just from riding in Connecticut, I really didn't know what I was getting myself up to. I w we drove up, my wife and I, it was about a five-hour drive to Western New York, show up, surprise Jeremy, tell him, like, hey, like, I'm riding tomorrow. And he just kind of stops and looks at me, and he's like, you're riding tomorrow with all of us? And I was like, yeah. I, you know, I've been working on my endurance. I think that I think I can do 40 miles. Like, so far, I'm up to, like, 20. So I think I can do 40 up here. Like, let's go for it. And he was like, all right, well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. And the next morning, we wake up and walk out to my truck, and it's just covered in ice. Like, it had snowed, it had rained the night before, it was freezing. Like I said, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I knew that as long as I didn't quit, that I'd be okay. As long as I didn't give up, I'd be okay. So about 20 of us set out in the morning, which was supposed to be a 40-mile gravel grinder, just like kind of like group fun ride. And it just started at the bottom of a of a ski mountain. I had no idea that that hills or mountains like this 
existed. So that day, it's raining, it's snowing, I'm getting my absolute butt kicked. And there's so many moments where I literally had to get off the bike and start walking the bike up some of these hills. I was like, I can't ride up it. Like, I just I just can't do it. And then I notice I turn around, and there's a detailed van behind me. And the guy pulls up, and he's like, I'm, you know, I'm the sweet van. Like, I, I'm just following along, seeing if there's any, like, last, just basically going around picking up anyone who's dropped off or got a mechanical and, Maybe you want to hop in the van. It's nice and warm in here. And I was like, no, like, there's no way. There's no way I can give up yet. So I kept going, kept going. And at one point, Jeremy had his buddy, Chris Norvold. He's like, Chris, just stay with Dylan. Don't let him get in trouble. Don't let him fall too far behind. And Chris kept offering. He's like, hey, grab onto my seat pole, man. I'll pull you up this hill. Like, grab onto the seat pole. I'll pull you up the hill. And I was like, I, I can't. I really can't because I, even though I have both arms, I only have one arm. So I, I don't have a good arm to steer and grab onto the seat pole. I, I just can't do it. So, like, there'd be times where I'd hop off the bike and start walking, and he'd get off the bike and start walking with me. And just the companionship that day, of, like, he never left my side. And the weather turned for the worst that day. I like, couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet. And I ended up falling it short at, like, 27 miles, which was probably – <laughs> the best thing that happened that day because there was no way I was going to finish 40. That was my first real ass kicker. And I looked at my life, I was like, 27 miles just, just completely destroyed me. Like, I don't know if I can do 100 in seven months. She's like, you'll got to just stick with it. Just stick with it. And so I ended up doing a, uh, a Plymouth Mass gravel grinder a, a couple months later, which was a 50 miler and was able to do that. You know, I slowly started increasing the distances until I got up to, I think the farthest I rode before the, the century ride was was maybe like 70 miles. And I bought an old S-Works tarmac, like a 2012 specialized S-Works tarmac on, I think I bought it on eBay for $1,000. And I was like, oh, this is my chariot. We're going <laughs> to make the most out of this. That that was it. Once I went down there that the night before for the to New Haven for the close to the free ride and just felt the energy and the atmosphere and the air like I knew it was at the right place and I did it in under seven hours I think it was like six hours and forty minutes or or something like that that I that I did it and I feel like it rearranged my brain in in the sense to where it started paving the way that I could believe that anything is possible and I was like man you had a goal a one year goal. It was so foreign to me, something so far out of my comfort zone, but I stuck with it and I did it. And that was just such a game changer for me. I don't even know what that day that it happened. It went by so fast. I don't really remember cramping or hurting. I just remember being so excited, so pumped that here it is. Everything you've worked for is right here. Like, you've got this. You can finish. And the, the goal was just to finish. Like, I, I'm not a fast. I'm not, like, going out to win any of these races. They were all just to finish. I felt on top of the world. It was a month or two after I did the century ride to where daylight savings time kicked in. And all of a sudden, like, the seasonal depression started kicking my ass. I was like, 
oh my God, I don't have anything to look forward to, like as far as an event or any races or anything to do, like here, it's getting dark, it's getting cold, and I really feel the depression kicking my ass. What am I going to do? It's like, I, I got to sign up for something that, that I can't finish but can train for and finish. And I thought the next hardest thing next to a century ride was to try my luck in an Ironman. And uh, I signed up for the half Ironman in Connecticut, which was maybe eight months away. And it really, it made me excited and sick at the same time. Like I texted my cousin Pat and was like, hey, I signed up for Ironman and threw up all in the same 30 seconds. I don't even know what I'm getting myself into. I can't even really swim with one arm. And I, I'm not a runner. I don't like running. So I'm, I'm not sure, but I signed up and we're going to see what happens. <laughs> and it was just one of those, another one of those goals that I just set like astronomically high and then just knew what I had to do. I was like, you got to get into a pool and learn how to swim with one arm and you got to get better on the bike and you're going to have to start running. And so I started swimming a lot and, and biking more and running more. And I was, I was able to, to finish the half Ironman that year. The bike has been like my source of kind of finding myself through pushing the limits, I guess. Knowing that at one point I couldn't ride farther than five miles. And now like, I think my longest ride is about 120 now, but it's, I've gotten faster. I've gotten more comfortable. I've gotten way better with the arm and the steering and so many things come into play when I first started riding, like I couldn't hydrate or, or feed myself while in motion. So I'd always be like pulling over for a sip of the water bottle or, or to grab a goo or a bar or something like that. And over the years of just kind of riding and, and finding my balance, I've been able to get better at just grabbing the water bottle and, and having a sip and putting it back without feeling like I'm going over the handlebars. Yeah, the biking has definitely helped keep me sober in two ways. One was initially setting the goal to accomplish, you know, a distance that hadn't been done before. But then the other end of it is getting on the bike and pedaling and being outside. Or, or like I said, I do the indoor cycling, but be, being outside and pedaling with the, with the wind in your face and just kind of the freedom and that flowing and being out in nature, really breathing in fresh air and going through having an elevated heart rate and sweating. And it's just, for me, when I see a bike, even though I get excited, if it's like a sexy bike, there's still like a calming sensation that comes over me because I know if I get on the bike and ride it, no matter how far I go or what I do on it, when I put the bike back, I'm going to feel better. That's great. Well said. So right now, the mission is to really kind of share my my passions and the two things that saved my life. And since recovery saved my life and cycling saved my recovery, I've started a not-for-profit called the Lefty Cycles Project. And our mission is getting people in recovery access to bikes, helmets, locks for all sorts of needs, whether it's transportation, exercise, just to get out and have fun. We're just trying to get more bikes into the hands of those in recovery.
We are a young organization, and one of the ways people can find out more about us is check out our website at theleftycyclesproject.org. Social media, we're on Facebook and Instagram for the Lefty Cycles Project. Currently taking bike donations, bike park donations, helmet donations. We even got, um, we're looking for helmets and lights, anything to make the biking experience better for for those that truly need it and can't afford it. The way people can help and donate is you can contact myself, Dylan, at the Lefty Cycles Project Foundation. We're accepting checks. We're accepting bikes. Anything that could be used to better somebody's biking experience, really. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you, man. Well, now it's time for the mid-roll thank yous. So I'd like to express our gratitude here at the show. So Mike, thank you for liking the episode 52. E-M-N-Q-P-M-3-P-H-H, thank you for following. Cycle Girl, I-08, thank you for following. And Breaking Bread with Lee Velo Voyage, thanks a lot for following on Podbean. Thanks for everybody who's liked and followed and left good reviews anywhere on the internet. I really appreciate it. Also want to give a shout out and a suggestion possibly for Patreon. So if you search up Bike Karma on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you can help out the show. No, I'm not going to quit my day job anytime soon. Sadly, nor retire anytime soon, probably. But anyway, that's a different story. But helping out the show, you can help me to defray the cost of hosting services and keep up the practice of sending out stickers to anybody who wants them for free. So a big please and thank you for checking out Bike Karma on Patreon. There are a lot of people with their stories in the queue, and I just want to thank you for being patient until your show airs. I am truly humbled that so many people are willing to share their stories with me. Helping to support the show is Fred Thomas from The Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes. Please give Fred a follow at The Frame and Wheel on any social media that you're on. That's The Frame and Wheel. Now let's say you're like me, and during this time you have found a lot of bike parts that you thought you were going to use, but you didn't. Or maybe there's some nice kit that you were going to wear, but you haven't. Or maybe there's a whole bike that you bought that you'd rather have a different one. Well, in your mind, I'm sure you have all good intentions of selling that, perhaps online. But for some reason, you haven't yet. And why haven't you? Because it's a hassle. It's a hassle to take pictures, to list, to deal with buyers, to deal with the places where you have to list. Lots of people have moved away from eBay and gone to Facebook, and yet you have to deal with some of these people who are not always the nicest, kindest people to deal with. So you know what I say? Let Fred deal with it. He wants to. Fred is an expert. He is a master at selling things online, specifically bicycles, bicycle parts, and gear. He knows how to take beautiful pictures of it. He knows how to describe it and list it appropriately. 
and while there are a lot of good people out there buying stuff, he also knows how to deal with all the weirdos that come out of the woodwork. Fred can be your best friend, giving you time, space, and cash. He can protect you from the lunacy of selling things online yourself directly. Be done with it once and for all. Pack it in a box and send it to Fred at the frame and wheel, and he'll take care of the rest. Have a lot of stuff? Can't just pack it into one box? Contact Fred and he will talk to you about how to get it to him ASAP and in good order. There are several options with the frame and wheel. Fred himself might make you an offer, or you can wait for him to send you a check after it sells. You could have Fred contribute it on to your favorite charity, or you could apply the funds to a new product like one of Fred's AD bikes. The world is weird right now. Swap meets are on hold, bike shops are out of parts, and yet cycling remains one of the safe things to do during this pandemic. Fred has his fingers on the pulse of the market, so check out the frame and the wheel. Whether you're a buyer or a seller, Fred can help you to sell, and he's got a lot of great stuff available to buy. And thanks, Fred, for being a supporter of the show. Let's go back to the stories. So in life, there's dreams versus expectations. Maybe if you don't have a snow bike, you fantasize about winter, and you think about how that snow bike is going to cut through the snow. And in some cases, that's totally true. Snow bikes are awesome. Whether they're fat tire or a big plus size, with the little carbide spikes on the treads or not, depending on how icy it is, but thinking you're gonna go through any type of snow or ice like a Stomper 4x4 is probably just a little unrealistic. That was me before I got a snow bike. I naively imagined that no matter how deep the snow, I was gonna be able to just plow through it. Maybe I'd have to pick a lower gear or something like that, but I'd be able to get through, you know, six inches, 12 inches of snow. This was not the case. While some people can do that, and I'm sure I'm going to get some calls back and say, oh, I do that. I snapped a chain because I was putting too much pressure on the bike in, like, not too deep a snow. So what is the reality of snow biking? Well, from my experience, the reality is, is that groom trails are good trails. Now, groom trails could mean that somebody goes out and specifically grooms them for fat biking, or it could mean that somebody's already gone through with cross-country skis, or some poor parents pulled their kid through the park with a sled and left a nice wide surface that goes all the way around the loop so that you can follow over it with your bike. I think that somebody said there's like a thousand different types of snow, and you don't really realize that until you try and do some activities in it. Just from one day to the next in the same location could be totally different condition. If you have slightly deeper snow and then there's like a rainy bit and it melts a little bit and refreezes, then you might be able to easily go over it, but only if you have studded tires. On light powder, you don't really need those studs, especially in the first few snows of the season. And for those new to fat biking or plus size tire biking, you need to get comfortable with the idea of really, really, really crazy blow your mind tire pressure that's super low. 
If you manage to have nice trails around you, like you just started fat biking during the winter and you've got groomed trails near you, if you go out and your tire pressure is too high, people are not going to like what you do to that trail. So you'll actually mess up the groomed surface by having too high a tire pressure. But like I said, that tire pressure that's too high is crazy low compared to what you would normally run on road bikes. So this year I really wanted to level up with my winter riding and really think and be a little bit more organized about how I was thinking about what I was going to do on a certain ride. So I had two basic setups that I was going to try and one was my mountain bike with 27.5 plus size Ice Biker Pros. I think they're 2.6 or 2.8s. These are a very aggressive tread that has little carbide metal spikes in most of the little bumps on the tire. And then I had my plain old fat bike, but I was going to really, really trust what everybody else was saying and get down there really low with some low tire pressures and see if that would create a huge difference like everybody was saying it would. So over the course of just like a week, I went from fluffy light snow to deep snow to deep wet snow to ice, ice over crunchy snow, and snow with a lot of frozen tracks on it from tires and footprints. On one day when I should have had the ice spikes, I didn't, and I took a little slide on the ice, but then I was able to move it over into the shoulder of the dirt road and did okay. So none of this is to scare you or put you off from ice biking or snow biking during the winter. In fact, I, the opposite, I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. But just with myself, I just need to be smarter about what I choose to bring with me on any given day. Check those conditions a lot closer than the other three seasons of the year and make sure I pick the right tires and put them at the right pressure for that day. Here's a couple of my observations from the field. So I'm out in the snow and gravel road with my Ice Biker Pro Schwab tires and just very tell people about it. It's nice. You do kind of got to get up to a certain speed where you're planing and then you can kind of go quick. Um, you don't really want to do quick turns. Certainly not in slippery snow. And the other thing to watch out for is parallel tracking. If you go on a dirt road that's covered with snow and not plowed, the trucks going by and the cars are kind of a godsend in one way because they make the snow more compact. They get rid of that fluff factor so that you can kind of roll over it. But what they also do is they create a really complex pattern of parallel lines. And the worst thing to happen is when your back tire gets in a groove and your front tire is in a different parallel groove. And that kind of makes you a little bit nervous at first. And then eventually you learn how to just pull out of it and then go in one straight line. But occasionally your bike is going in two different lines. And since they can't go really in two different lines at the same time, one of the tires is sliding more than the other. But comparing, this is a 27 plus spiked studded tire with really, really beefy treads on it versus the fat bike, which would kind of roll over a lot of this stuff, but it would also slip when you go sideways as well. So if you got a friend, borrow their fat bike, borrow their bike with studded tires on it, and you'll get this really good appreciation of which one's gonna work the best for you. And while you can't do as much cycling as you can in better weather, at least I can't, it's really good to get out. I'm looking at the gray sky at dusk, down by the Connecticut River, you can hear the geese in the background. The dogs run alongside me because there's very little traffic on this road. Last half hour, there's been one other truck. 
and just get you out and let you breathe. Okay, so that's the winter cycling reflective moment. And uh, I'm going to get back to pedaling. It's been a long week. So one of the most difficult parts of winter riding is getting used to insanely low tire pressures. So on a little skinny tired road bike, you're talking about 100 PSI. On a big plus or fat tire bike, you're looking at less than 12 PSI. Some people go down to like 3 PSI. So you got to get used to and comfortable with those really low tire pressures in order to give your tire the ability to grip well. Unfortunately, if you're also a big guy like me, that means you also have to take that into account. Whether you're using tubeless or you're using tubes, also have to take that into account. Powder is great for a fat bike tire, but ice or really slippery crusted over snow that's very icy on top is really slippery. So in those cases, you might need the little studs, little metal pieces that go into your tire. There's, there could be hundreds of them on a single tire. And these little carbide studs, they come off every once in a while. So you'll find, you know, two or three missing and then two or three more missing. And then periodically each season, you check it over and you make sure that you have enough to get traction all the way around the tire. And you do need to keep replacing the studs. That's all normal. So my big takeaway from this is if I had to get one winter bike and I was able to get a flat bike in my size, I would get studded wide tires, probably the widest that I could fit, and make sure they were studded. And those are really expensive, and the time to buy them is unfortunately in the summer, before 2020. So <laughs> I don't know how you're gonna do that, but get those, get those really fat tires, and get them with the studs, and then you're kind of ready for ice and snow. If you're able to pedal it, you'll know. If you already have a plus size bike that you can fit some really wide tires on, go ahead and get some studded tires for that. Just know you're not going to be able to plow through everything that nature has to throw at you. Try those really, really, really low pressures as low as you could go without pinching. I used to like to be clever and say, oh, I just put tubeless sealant into tubes and there it's no mess and I still get the benefit of tubeless. But if you have made for tubeless rims and you try and put a tube into those, they're so freaking tight. Uh, you're going to get all kinds of pinch marks and snake bites just trying to fit the tire on. It took me an hour just to fit two tires because the rims and the tire combination was so tight. But once you get them on, they're on. Just be realistic that there's still going to be some days where you aren't going to be able to ride, but it's you're going to get out there a lot more than you would. And if the indoor trainer is really not doing a lot for your emotions and your mind, maybe it's going to be worth it for you to get that winter bike setup going. I know for me, I don't regret that at all. And while I'm glad I was able to score a set of the plus size, I think that I could have saved some money just by getting the fat bike tires with the studs during the summer and just having be done with it. Now I gotta just find that sweet spot of my weight versus tire pressure to keep me rolling through the winter until that sweet, sweet sun in springtime comes back. Till then, every ride is a good ride. Thank you.
and here's our PSA for the ABC Quick Check. Every time before you ride, it's a great idea to do an ABC Quick Check. A stands for air, checking the air and checking your tires, looking them over. Are there any bubbles coming off the side? Are there any gashes in the tire? Just check it over quickly. B is for brakes. Grab them. Make sure that they're going to stop you. If you have pads, look at where the pads are hitting. Make sure they didn't get knocked around a little bit and they might be touching the tire. That would be bad. Make sure you can't pull the handle all the way down to the bar. That would mean they're too loose. And then C is for chain line. Everything to do with the chain and what drives your bike. Check it over. Give it a little inspection. Look at the gears. Make sure none of them are pried apart. You might even see a part of your chain where one little side is holding the chain together. This will save you from the walk of shame home if your chain breaks. And then finally, quick. Quick was invented. This ABC quick check was a safety thing invented back when quick releases were kind of the standard. But quick stands for quick releases or through axles or nuts, whatever holds the wheel on your bike. But it also stands for doing a quick overall check of your bike. What I like to do is I like to pick it up and drop it, maybe from about four inches off the ground, just to hear what it sounds like. If I hear a weird rattle when I do that, or if something comes falling off, I'm like, ooh, that's, I'm glad I caught that. So get in the habit of doing an ABC quick check before you go out on each ride. You never can be sure what happens to your bike in between rides, and this is a great habit to get into. So make 2021 the year where you start doing an ABC quick check before every ride. Now back to the show. Well, you've made it to the end of yet another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'd like to thank everybody who helped with today's show, including the band Mob Jack and Keller Glass. Their music is our opening and closing theme music, which is used with permission, and I am very grateful for that. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or search them up wherever you listen to good music, and you can also check out Keller Glass and some of his more recent projects. All the other music for the show is royalty and copyright free, and I appreciate those musicians as well. If you have questions, comments, have a story that you might like to share on the show, perhaps you have a product that you think would be a good fit as an endorsable item for the show, or maybe you'd just like some free stickers. Maybe you have an extra large salsa Fargo that you're looking to get rid of. Or if you know Greg Lamond, Oprah Winfrey, or somebody in Greenland, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyrights, trademarks, and others, are asserted and reserved. Big thank you to all the people listening in over 90 countries. I am very grateful for that and hope you enjoy the show. Be nice out there, be safe out there. Until next time, keep it wheeled.